Let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as we bring our study of higher ground to a conclusion today. Our theme verse has been the first verse of this fourth chapter, and I want to read the first two verses to you this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 and 2. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul visited the city of Thessalonica, and we can read about it in Acts chapter 17. And there was a great conversion there of those Gentile pagans and the Jewish believers and the Gentile proselytes to the gospel of Christ. And they delivered verbally the instructions of God on how New Testament churches and New Testament Christians are to live. And what Paul is telling us here in these verses are that what I laid out to you, what you received from me, were how you are supposed to walk and how you are supposed to please God. But I'm writing you this epistle because I want you to do those things more and more. And that's been our emphasis of higher ground, is doing the things that please God more and more. We do not want to rest having run three laps of a four-lap race. We want to run our last lap the best of all, as the Apostle Paul would teach us in Philippians chapter 3. So this is our theme verse, that as we have received, let us conform our lives more and more perfectly to do those things that God has commanded us, as verse 2 shows. Flip back to chapter 3, and I've done this a time or two with you, because I want you to see the context of pleasing God more and more. Verse 7, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. The apostle says in 7, Brethren, we were comforted, though we are greatly distressed as apostles and apostolic helpers. In our affliction and distress, we were comforted by your faith. For we live. It gives us life. It recharges us. It revives us. If you people are standing fast in the Lord, how can we even thank God again? We've thanked Him so many times, and we've thanked Him so much for your steadfastness in the faith. How can we do any more? Because we're so full of joy for your sakes before our God. Verse 9. Night and day, praying that we might see you. For what purpose? It sounds like a perfect church. That we might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. So though the faith was of great comfort to Paul on the part of the the Thessalonians here, though their faith was of great comfort, there were things in their faith they could improve. 
And the apostle wanted to see them to help them toward that end. And thus, the Word of God to us. Though the Lord has led us in many wonderful ways to many wonderful things over the last 35 years, we want to press ahead to find that which is lacking in our faith and give that to Him as well. So we have in verse 11, Now God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. This thing that Paul was praying for, to see them face to face. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, this is the goal, He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, the goal of a church is to be holy and without blame before God and Jesus Christ at His coming. And the things that are taught here, leading up to that holiness, are to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as the apostle did toward them. And so much of today is going to be about body life, the life of a church. And whenever, if you've read the New Testament, you have found that love is repeated over and over and over again. And even here, with this church that had very little lacking, what he stresses right here is love. And so we will put some stress on that today. In chapter 4, going past our theme verse, in verse 1, we come down to verse 9. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. Now he just told them they needed to increase and abound in brotherly love. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. There was a sense in which the apostle did not need to teach the Thessalonians about loving each other. Because God had worked in them both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And about the highest measure of God's good pleasure on earth is to increase and abound in love. Our religion is very simple. Two commandments. The love of God Jehovah and the love of His children, our brethren, one another. That is so simple. And we're to abound in that. There's a, there's a respect that it does not need to be taught because God has worked it in us to will, to choose to love, and to actually do it and show love toward others if we're truly born again. But that needs to be stirred up. And so the apostle did write them about love. And he pressed them to increase and abound in it in chapter 3. And he pressed them here in verse 10 for them to increase more and more. This is higher ground. We want to find those things that the apostle presses us to doing more of. And today will be some issues of body life and some other issues. And we'll try to cover them briefly. You know, at the end of a sermon series, when the Lord convinces a pastor it's time to finish a series 
There are sometimes a miscellaneous list of subjects that need to be covered, much like the Apostle Paul when he would finish an epistle. So since your Bibles are open to this place, the Apostle Paul started out his epistle to the Thessalonians and wrote very slowly and methodically of the things he wanted to say to them. Then he realized it was time to wrap this epistle up, and he just dropped a whole bunch of verses on them in verses in chapter 5, verses 14 through 27. May I share this with you, a sundry list of miscellaneous things that they ought not to forget as part of their church duties, but that he wouldn't elaborate on. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5 as Paul's wrapping up this letter, wanting to seal it, stamp it, and send it to the church at Thessalonica. Verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. And so we have a sundry list given by the apostle of things at the end of his epistle that he did not elaborate on, and so I want to rather quickly cover some today and wrap up this series of messages. Let's not forget that things we may do well, we can improve in. As was prayed, we can do better, and we want to do better. So we're following Paul's instruction to do better. You've heard these things before. Thankfully, or it'd be a very, it'd be an embarrassment to preach higher ground when we haven't even reached the lower ground because it hadn't been preached. But we're pulling them together for our collective benefit of knowing where this church ought to go in the next 35 years if the Lord tarries. You know, when, when you look at higher ground, you, you, you could preach the whole New Testament because the whole New Testament is higher ground. Right. Uh, it's much higher ground than the Old Testament, and it's much higher ground. The Old Testament's higher ground than anything else that's ever been written. But uh, we want to limit ourselves. We're only going to deal lightly with them. You know, the world talks about exchanging gifts with each other, but we want to give the Lord Jesus Christ a gift. Amen. And we don't want to give Him a birthday cake and blow out candles. We want to give the Lord Jesus Christ the gift of the best church that we can give Him. If the Bible is true... This is his body. If the Bible is true, a local church is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That's incredible. If the Bible is true, we're the bride of Christ. Let's give ourselves to him chaste, pure, perfect, delighting in him, reverencing him, 
loving him like no other. Not for our praise. For his glory and happiness. Let's give him a gift. The best church that we can give him. There may seem like some repetition or overlap in what I'm about to lay on you in this service and the next, but it reflects the Bible's emphasis. And I hope that you'll recognize it as you think about what do the New Testament epistles actually teach for New Testament churches to be doing. It's very troubling that most churches think the Great Commission is their only real goal. When you look at their mission statement, all they can write about is generally the Great Commission. But when you go through Paul's epistles, you can't find the Great Commission. Not even once. But what you can find are a whole lot of the higher ground traits that I've taught already in the ones I'll teach you today. It's very helpful to consider that we want to go beyond those things that are typically written in church creeds. In 1644, seven Baptist congregations in London, England, came out with the first London Confession of Faith. It was modified in 1646 and re-signed by those delegates to correct language that might be construed as believing the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. We're thankful for that revision. I just gave you a little bit of Baptist history that the Baptists in London in 1644 and 1646 believed the doctrine of sonship like we do. And they revised their confession because the wording in the first edition of 1644 was not as good as the wording in 1646 to make sure that no one thought they were Presbyterians or Catholics believing the eternal sonship of Christ. In 1689, above a hundred congregations in London, England, came out with the second Baptist confession of faith. And in those confessions of faith are the great elements of Christian doctrine. You know, the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Trinity of God, the depravity of man, the salvation that is in Christ, the basic organization structure of the church, our submission and obedience to civil government, the doctrine of baptism, and those basic doctrines. And that's all that's in a confession of faith. And we're thankful to believe those points of doctrine, more or less, as they did. But we want to go beyond them. We want to go beyond that fundamental aspect of the basic tenets of Christianity and reach forth toward that unblameable, holy character of life that should be reflected by our church and in each of our lives. The Apostle Paul knew, and the Lord Jesus Christ knew, about ranking commandments. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23, You pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin. You Pharisees are diligent about tithing your herb gardens, but you have overlooked the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith, being fair and righteous in all your dealings, being merciful, and believing and trusting God. Those are weightier matters of the law. The Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 6 would say, let us leave behind the principles of the doctrine of Christ and let us go on unto perfection. Let's not keep preaching about the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. So see, Paul knew it. So that's what we're trying to do. 
What have we covered so far? May I just read the words? Let me take a minute on the first one. Christ-centered. Christ-centered. Our church must be, will be, has been, but we want to do it more and more, higher ground, to be Christ-centered. We do not want to be satisfied that we know about His virgin birth. We do not want to be satisfied that He is the incarnate Son of God. We do not want to be content that He died only for the elect on the cross of Calvary. We want to embrace Him as the Son of God, our brother, our high priest, our friend, our mediator. We want to love Him. We want to glorify Him. We want to glory in Him. We want to glory in His cross. That means to be exultant and excited and thankful and delighting in Him. We want to reach way beyond just the bare doctrinal knowledge of our Lord and Savior. But that was the first one. Christ-centered. Think. Review with me briefly by just mentioning the traits. Number one, we want to be Christ-centered. We want to emphasize the Holy Spirit in our church more. More prayer in private and public. To be more spiritually minded. Number five, to have a more eternal perspective on life. A heavenly perspective. To emphasize a relationship with God more than His religion. To practice personal holiness. Personal devotions. Number nine, spiritual warfare. That we would resist the devil and he would flee from us as a church and individually. The fruit of the Spirit. That we would be a soul winning church in the Bible sense of the word. That this place would be a place for revival. Is number 12. That we would have reverent worship as God expects. That we would be faithful in church attendance for the reasons the Bible gives, that we would grow in service, and that we would be liberal givers in the way the Bible describes. Okay. Look at Psalm 26 with me, and let's go to trait number 17. Those were 16 traits that the Lord has shown us so far. Let's quickly cover a few, and it will be quick. You've been taught these things before. Let's just remind ourselves of them. And the reason the Lord has convicted me about this series of messages is that we should not be content where we came in 35 years. And the Lord did bring us a long way. 35 years ago, many of us were practicing and believing a lot of crazy things. But God in His grace has brought us through several crossings of the Red Sea, as it were, and has revealed much truth to us, and we're very thankful to Him. We don't deserve it, but we certainly are appreciative of it, just like Israel was. Wasn't that seventh verse there in Psalm 103 glorious? The revelation of God. If we did not have revelation, we have nothing. Now, He's revealed Himself in the natural creation, but He didn't reveal very much. Right. The Bible is a huge blessing. We're very thankful for it. The trait, number 17, very quickly, self-examination. 
this church needs to always be willing and able and to remember to examine itself. Self-examination is a trait of great men in the Bible. It was a trait of David. When you study the heart of David, one of the things that separated David from other men is that he would examine himself and talk to himself and measure himself by God's measuring stick, which is the Word of God. And if he came up wanting, he'd confess his sins. And we want to do that as a church. Look at David in Psalm 26, verse 1. Judge me, O Lord. You don't want to say those words unless you've been living righteously. Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart, for thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. I have not sat with vain persons, neither will I go in with dissemblers. I have hated the congregation of evildoers, and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash mine hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving, and tell of all thy wondrous works. And he goes on describing the character of David. We individually want that character. One of God's convictions in my heart for you and for me is that we would be more and more like the man David in the Bible. The man that God chose to reveal more about him than the next ten combined. There is so much in the Bible about David. The man after God's own heart. What precious words that descriptive phrase is. Let it be true of us as a church. Let it be true of us as families and as individuals. But how did David get to be that way? He examined himself. He opened himself up before the Lord. You need to come totally clean. Empty yourself before the Lord. Tell Him, I have no ambition on earth or in eternity but Your glory. Use me. Take me. I'm Yours. What is wrong in my life? Where am I disappointing You? Show it to me. I'll flush it. I'll destroy it. Show me my Agag and I'll hew him to pieces. Show me my Goliaths, and I'll run to meet him, and slay him, and chop his head off with his own sword. Lord, help us to examine ourselves as a church in the coming years. Second Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is not foreign to the idea at all of self-examination for a church. Now this church thought they were about as good as it got. Because they came behind no other church in spiritual gifts. They had more speaking in tongues and prophets and ministrations of the Spirit than any other church. But here's what Paul said to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5. Examine yourselves. Whether ye be in the faith. Know ye not your own selves? Let's back up. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not that your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. Why in the world would he tell a church, baptized believers, that they needed to examine themselves and prove themselves because they might be reprobates? 
Because they might be reprobates. So we want to examine ourselves as a church. How can we ever avoid what was happening to Ephesus and what was happening to Laodicea and the other churches in Revelations 2 and 3 unless we examine ourselves? We're not going to get an epistle addressed to the church of Greenville. We're going to get an epistle addressed to the church of Ephesus. And we read it and we have to examine ourselves. Have we lost our first love? We read the epistle to the Laodiceans and it said, or the words to the Laodiceans and there Jesus said, you're lukewarm. We have to examine ourselves. Are we lukewarm? Lord, help us to examine ourselves. We can never be content with the three laps we've run. It's the lap in front of us that counts. That's why Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind, I press forward for the things that are before that I might gain the high calling and prize of God in Christ Jesus. Turn to Malachi chapter 4 and let's go to trait number 18. Trait number 18. Righteous relationships. Malachi chapter 4. Things that the New Testament does emphasize. You know, when you read through Paul's epistles, you can't find the Great Commission, but can you find wives addressed on how they should treat their husbands? Oh, yes. Do you find how husbands should treat their wives? Oh, yes. Parents to children? Yes. Children to parents? Yes. Citizens to governments? Yes. Employers to employees? Yes. Employees to employers? Yes. Relationships. At a men's meeting, and I, it's on the website, we have a wheel, a relationship wheel that shows all the different spokes going out from you in the center and all the relationships that the Bible describes with the verses attached on how you should treat each relationship because you have many of them. And one of the ways to conform ourselves more perfectly to Jesus Christ is to guard our relationships. Look at the ministry of John the Baptist. In Malachi chapter 4, the last two verses of the Old Testament. Verse 5. Behold, the last two verses of the Old Testament. What is going to make the cut of being important enough for these two verses? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is John the Baptist, 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So there's a curse held over us if we're not taking care of our relationships. And the relationship here is fathers to children and children to fathers. If you turn to Luke chapter 1, you can see that this is the ministry of John the Baptist as the angel announced it to his father, Zacharias. Luke 1, 17, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. That's why he was metaphorically, symbolically, prophetically called Elijah the prophet, because he would go, John the Baptist would go in the spirit and power of Elias. Luke 1, 17, To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. God just assumes something here that you should always assume that parents are right. It's the wisdom of the just. And the disobedient should humble themselves to the wisdom of the just that is set 
in opposition to the hearts of the fathers to the children. But here are the words that are precious that we ought to lay hold of to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. A church that is prepared for the Lord is a church that has their relationships right. Lord, help us to that end. Bible Christianity puts parental honor very high. It also exalts child training by parents. It tells us in the perilous times of the last days, children will be disobedient to most Christian parents. Even a father-in-law is important. As Exodus chapter, there's a whole chapter in the Bible about Moses honoring his father-in-law, Jethro. Exodus chapter 18. The Bible warns us about cool marriages. Offend him. Cool marriages offend him. Malachi chapter 2, he says, The women of this nation are covering my altar with tears. Unhappy wives, because their husbands aren't loving them like they should. And, and, and being treacherous against them. By polygamy marriages, and by marrying foreign exotic women. And so God rips into them in Malachi chapter 2 for corrupting the covenant of Jacob that they were supposed to marry within that church of the Old Testament. But he says, you've covered my altar with tears. That is not going to bode well for the men. And when a woman is crying tears when she comes before the Lord because she's not loved like she should be, like He promised that He would, then we have a bad relationship that we want to perfect. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3, 7 that husbands are to dwell with their wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as being a weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. There is a verse of warning that your prayers be not hindered. We do not want a church where our prayers do not make it above this ceiling because our wives are not loved in the Bible way that we're taught to love them. It's, it's that serious. To make ready a people for the Lord is to have prayers that God will hear because we're loving our spouses. You know, the Bible says that if you do not have frequent sex, as 1 Corinthians 7, 5 teaches, which should only be for a short season to give yourselves to fasting and prayer, come together again quickly, lest Satan tempt you for your incontinency. This is the Word of God, both Testaments, and the practical aspects of the relationships we should have and how we should keep them good. You know, this extends to job relationships, civil government. You know, in the Bible, fearing God and honoring the King go right next to each other. Because the King is God's minister on earth. And we do not want to pretend that we're honoring God while we ridicule the King or civil authority. And so all I have preached all these relationships before. I'm reminding us right now that these traits of higher ground for us to go into the future, it's not just to write a little sentence in a church creed that we believe in submission to civil government. It's to practice it in our hearts. Curse not the king, not even in your thoughts or your bedroom. In order for us to be the church that we can and should be going into the future. God always addresses those under authority first and most. And this is His wisdom. So the emphasis in the Bible is always on children obeying, not on parents loving. The emphasis in the Bible first is women submitting, then husbands loving. Because that's how the authority relationship is established. 
in all five spheres. So those under authority should, should put forth the greatest effort to get that relationship started and on the right footing. And those in authority should practice what God says about them toward those under their rule. I hope that you'll take the time to consider the relationships, church. It would be a great family devotional item because it will take you several nights to go through all the different relationships and show your children the verses that apply. These are God's commandments, not suggestions. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He won't hear our prayers, man. You say, but I'm holy in all the rest of my life. I'm just a little bitter. You don't know what my wife's done to me. God does, and He doesn't care. Right. You're supposed to love her anyway. Right. I mean, it's serious business. How can we go forward in the future shouting rah-rah that we have the King James Bible while we're not loving our spouses? Or we have strife between with our children and parents? Or with an employer? Or with brethren? Look at Proverbs 13 and verse 10. Let me, let me lay a rule on you that is a, is, a good, is a good rule to remember when strife comes up in relationships. Proverbs chapter 13. Only by pride cometh contention. So what causes fights? Is it that simple? Do you like to say you're sorry? What makes it difficult sometimes? Pride. Only by pride cometh contention. Why is there a fight? There's pride. Why is there a grudge? There's pride. Somebody got their little itty-bitty baby feelings hurt. Flush your feelings. That's just pride. Don't call it principle. You're misspelling the word pride. You get started right with P-R-I, but then you mess up. Don't call it principle. It's pride. The principle is mercy, forgiveness, forbearance, passing over transgressions. That's the principle of God's Word. What a wonderful little reminder. Let's go to Micah chapter 7 and verse 18, which our brother Jim quoted, read to us this morning. Micah chapter 7, let's go to trait number 19. Trait number 19 is forgiveness and mercy. Of course, it helps relationships, and it's something we should self-examine ourselves for. So these do fit together. They should. Micah seven eighteen describes God to us. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. So God delights in mercy. And we ought to follow his example. He has shown us so much mercy. So we back up to chapter 6. And there's three verses here that are favorite verses of some. They are life verses of some. Because it says in Micah 6, 6, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? 
What do we need to go into the presence of God? Fancy stained glass windows? A beautiful organ? A choir? What do we need to get into the presence of the living God? We're going to get an answer. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? With calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? These are questions. What if I could give that much? My firstborn child. Verse 8, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. And we just want to jump right into the middle of those three things and grab the one that says love mercy, because in chapter 7, God says He delights in mercy. So we've got to be forgiving and merciful to each other because a church is made up of sinful men with only one thing in common, God and true His truth. And so we're always going to rub each other. We did not come together as an assembly because we liked each other. We came together because God liked us and stuck us together in a church. So at times we're going to dislike each other. At times we're going to see traits and and personality differences among ourselves and habits and training that we're going to dislike and it's going to rub us. And God arranged all that. He knew all that in advance about every single church He's ever formed in the earth. And so we forgive each other and show great mercy to each other. You know, most organizations or societies have other commonalities or mutual dependencies that help them stay together, like they're making a buck off each other. You know, the reason you stay with your company is because you need a job. Well, we don't offer jobs like that and paychecks. Why do we stay together? Because we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ together. And this is our articles of incorporation. These are the rules by which we live. This is the employee handbook of this body. But we're going to need to be forgiving and merciful toward one another. Let's love mercy. The worst that anyone can do to you, how many times have I preached it, Lord? The worst that anyone can do to you in Bible financial terms is 100 pence. But what has the Lord forgiven you? 10,000 talents. A million, a billion times the hundred pence. And that is found in Matthew chapter 18. Peter starts off a lesson he probably regrets he ever started. When he said, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Till seven times? He was picking what he thought was the perfect number. He was going to be a large man, a very merciful man, and picked seven. And the Lord said, no, till 70 times seven. And then he gave him the parable of the king that forgave 10,000 talents, but that same servant went out and took a fellow servant by the throat for 100 pence. And you know what the Lord Jesus Christ said? Deliver that man to the tormentor and extract every cent from them. If you believe the Word of God and tremble before it, do you know what you want to do? Forgive everyone totally in abundant mercy that washes 
everything away that they've ever done to you. That's how you get mercy. Remember, David taught us in Psalm 18, to the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. Look at Proverbs 19.11. Proverbs 19, this is, this is a precious verse on this subject of being forgiving and merciful. Oh, we're all, we're all going to offend each other. Can't help it. We're sinners. Husbands and wives offend each other and disappoint each other, and we disappoint each other in a church relationship. It's always going to happen, but let's just flush it and bury it and show the mercy toward others that the Lord has shown toward us. Do you know how offensive you are in God's sight? If you think you're only a little offensive, you don't know how wicked you are. If you were ever even near the presence of God without the intercession and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and His shed blood, His holiness would annihilate you. It would expose every bit of perversity and profanity and depravity of our beings. Remember Isaiah the prophet? As soon as he saw the Lord in Isaiah 6, Woe is me! I am undone! All he could think about was his speech. That words he had let out of his mouth. He was now in the presence of holiness. And those seraphim around his throne were declaring, Holy! 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 All he could think about was the filth, sarcasm, ridicule, criticism, disputings, murmurings that had come flying out of his mouth. We just need to remember that. He's forgiven us all and adopted us. Amazing love, how can it be? Proverbs 19.11 is a great rule. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. It should be your wise choice to put off any anger. Don't get mad. Don't get upset. Put off anger. This is a deferral for you accountants. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. Put it off. I'm not going to get angry right now. You know, one of the wisest things you can do is when something pops up to offend you, just leave it alone for a while. Just leave it alone and go do something else and let it dissipate because it will dissipate by God's grace. And then deal with it scripturally and hopefully it will already be dealt with because you didn't get angry. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. And look at these words. It is his glory to pass over a transgression. It is a glorious man that just passes over personal transgressions against himself. And it is his glory. He glories in being able to do it. And we should want to do it because it shows God's forgiveness of us. Brother, let's go to trait number 20. There's much more that could be said. I have pages here, but you've been taught these things. Let's just remember that there is a level of Christianity that extends beyond just knowing the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Look at Psalm 122 for our example, an example passage of Scripture. Psalm 122. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Remember I explained this to you a few weeks ago when I pointed out the singular pronouns and the plural pronouns. David writing, I, 
singular about himself, was glad when they, that is a plurality of his brethren, said unto him, let us go into the house of the Lord. Because God has chosen to be worshipped congregationally. Sometimes we wish that God had chosen that we could worship Him individually or as a family so we wouldn't have to come and put up with each other. It'd be so much easier. You know, we could could listen to tapes or MP3 recordings. But God has not chosen to be worshipped that way. He chose a nation in the Old Testament and He chose local churches in the New Testament and we want to remember that. But the important part that I want from Psalm 122 right now is for peace and unity. The future of our church is to be based on peace and unity. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Do you pray for our church to be kept at peace? They shall prosper that love thee. What a promise right there in verse 6. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, peace be within thee. Notice the emphasis on the word peace in verses 6, 7, and 8. And we do it and we want it for our brethren and our companions' sakes. For the benefit of the whole body, we want the whole body to be at peace. Every father with children that are growing up loves to have a dinner table where the whole family's at peace. Every mother loves that. It's a wonderful thing to have peace. And the Lord Jesus Christ is our Father. And God is our Father. And we want to give Him a family that pleases Him by always being at peace with each other. And so we all want to be peacemakers and make sure that this church is always at peace. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Even though 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and the verses I'm going to read you are an exhortation about the ministry, I want you to notice how they finish. Some of you may remember where I'm going with that statement. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. Paul is exhorting the church at Thessalonica to some of their duties toward their pastors. We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. But now, here's the sentence I want. The end of verse 13. And be at peace among yourselves. One of the nicest things you can ever do for a pastor is to keep a congregation at peace. That was cute. Jesus once said about Satan's kingdom that a kingdom divided cannot stand. Church divided can't stand. So we've got to keep this church united. We've got to shut down any that would ever sow discord. God hates them. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. God hates those that sow discord among brethren. We want this church to be in harmony. All the notes blending together into one beautiful sound for the glory of God. Romans 15, verses 5 and 6 describe it as us coming together with one mind, one mouth to glorify God. That's what He wants. That's what makes our music beautiful. That's what makes our prayers effective is that we do not have any division. Let's be peacemakers. If you sense division or dissension anywhere in the church, be a peacemaker and resolve it, being careful not to meddle in something that doesn't belong to you if it's being solved on its own. That's a balance of wisdom. 
by, by considering very carefully before you go and grab a dog by its ears. Most dogs don't like to be grabbed by their ears. And that's the Lord's comparison of involving yourself in a matter that doesn't belong to you. Peace and unity. If you hear a backbiter, backbiting anyone in our church, what should you do? Proverbs 25, 23 says, you know, your countenance should change. You should get angry and let them know that what they're doing is wrong. And then you can tell them if they're confused. God hates any sowing of discord. Let's always rejoice with those members that are honored. Let's weep with those that are weeping. And always be united together as a church. This is going into the future. You know, it's so easy, and I have seen this firsthand, to have a church that's like a seminary class. To where you show up and you learn more Bible doctrine, you close up your Bible and you go home. And you live the next 165 hours by yourself then you go back to the seminary class again to learn more doctrine. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. We want to learn charity and and have a body life that pleases God. A church is not a seminary class. It is a living organism whereby the Spirit of God inhabits all these different members, body parts, or stones, and they all function together for His glory. Let's help keep it that way. The next point I was going to make is uh, trait number 21 before we close. Just very briefly, look at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. It's, they're all, these are connected. These are connected. We need to examine ourselves. We need to make sure that our relationships are right. We need to love forgiveness and mercy. We need to maintain peace and unity. And that includes, these things include, hospitality and entertainment. And just because of the way that the Lord's providence has worked, I want to commend this church for a large amount of hospitality and entertainment that's taken place in the last eight days. Wow! Thank you, Lord! All over the church. Thank you, Lord! Thank you! Because it's part of apostolic religion. When you go into Acts chapter 2 and read about a church full of the Holy Ghost, they were eating their bread and meat from house to house, rejoicing in God together. And if any of you are thinking, I wasn't invited anywhere, that's your fault. Because you didn't invite anyone over. See, hospitality is you inviting others over. Hospitality is not others inviting you over. And we need to keep that straight. It's hospitality on the giver's part. And the Bible tells us ministers and members to be given to hospitality. That means to be addicted to it, prone to it, vulnerable to it. To be given to something is to have it controlling you. And we should have hospitality controlling us if we're a real church of the Lord Jesus Christ, these things you've been taught, these things you do well, going into the future, let's just keep doing them, but as the Apostle Paul would write us, more and more. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. What a great, simple little text. Use hospitality one to another. There's one of the one another duties of the New Testament. Each member owes each other member and the body in together 
hospitality without grudging that hospitality and what blessings it has to show hospitality. Someday we'll stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one of the ways we make our calling and election sure is when Jesus Christ says to those sheep on his right hand, you fed me when I was hungry. You took me in. You gave me drink when I was thirsty. And the righteous say, Lord, we can't remember ever doing that to you. And he says, in that you did it the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. This is the New Testament. This is the religion of Jesus Christ. Do you know, things like that do not make it very far on church confessions of faith. I've studied church confessions of faith since I was 18 years old. But you read through them and you get all these doctrines about the Trinity and doctrines about Christ and salvation and baptism. But then you read the New Testament. And those are the principles. That's the foundation. That's the bedrock on which this body life is laid. Because when you read Paul's epistles, the emphasis after establishing the fact that we've been saved by God's grace in Jesus Christ, therefore walk as dear children. And you have chapter in each epistle. You have chapters about how we should treat one another. And the Bible is filled with it over and over for our emphasis. And it needs to be our emphasis going into the future. You know, if you have children, you need to have your children trained. Who wants to invite you over? It's hard to invite somebody over that has five wild Indians. Or three. I shouldn't have said five. Or three. Oh, I shouldn't have said three. Or four. You know, when when you're invited over, don't stay too long. You know, sometimes you don't get invitations because the last time you were invited for two hours, you turned it into five hours. Is there a Bible verse that gives us wisdom on things like this? Does God care about all these things? The verse is this, Proverbs 25 and verse 17. Withdraw thy foot from thy neighbor's house, lest he be weary of thee, and so hate thee. So there's, there's practical wisdom. It's all been taught before. We just want to rem- remember it. But the most important thing is, we want to show hospitality. We want to entertain. We want to do it the Bible way. And we want to be given to it. These five traits, you know, start to fill out the things that we can be doing in the future. We've already been doing them. We've already been doing them. I know that. I've already taught you these things. But what did Paul say? As you have received of us the commandments of God that we taught you, we want you to abound in them and increase in them more and more. We can't increase more in the doctrine of the incarnate sonship of Jesus Christ. We took it as far as we can take it. But can we live more like Jesus Christ in forgiving and being merciful? Yes, we can. Lord, help us to do that. Amen.